Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Real world evidence. What does this mean to you in the medical device industry? What does it mean from a regulatory perspective? Well, on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, my guest, Mike Drew, is president of Vascular Sciences, and I have a discussion about real-world evidence and the things that you can do to consider this and include this as part of your quest to having products that are going to improve and save lives. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.guru, John Spear. And today we're going to dive into kind of a relevant and and timely topic, uh, something that's come up uh, in recent years with FDA and and frankly other parts of the world as well. But we're going to talk about this concept of real-world evidence, and what does that mean as it relates to bringing medical devices to market and, and those sorts of things? And, you know, he's, he's been a familiar voice on the Global Medical Device Podcast before, and, and I know he has a lot to share on this topic of real-world evidence. Joining me is Mike Drews, President of Vascular Sciences. Mike, happy day to you. Thank you, John. Happy day to you as well. Always a pleasure to, to speak with you and your audience. Yeah, so this topic of uh, real-world evidence, I mean, it's it kind of surfaced, well, I mean, a little bit more relevant in recent months, weeks and months, but, you know, it's been something that's kind of been percolating for a bit uh, on from an FDA perspective. I mean, what does all this mean, and why, does all this, why, why should we care? Why does it matter? So that's a great place to start, John. So the, the concept of real-world evidence certainly is not new. In fact, it goes back many decades. But the reason why it's kind of come up more recently is because last year, FDA put out a draft guidance uh, on real-world evidence. And actually, just this past month, that draft guidance was finalized. And now there is a, a final guidance coming specifically from CBRH from the device side of FDA on what real-world evidence is and uh, how and when it can be used. So simply put, real-world evidence to me is how are our products, how are our medical devices actually used in the real world, either by the physicians or surgeons or in some cases individual patients for home use devices, that kind of thing as opposed to what has been referred to in the past as the gold standard, which is the randomized clinical trial. Um, Real-world evidence is, in my opinion, much more realistic than in a uh, uh, randomized clinical trial or RCT. Let's be honest, although the RCT is considered the gold standard, it is inherently biased. I've said this in industry, and I've said this at the FDA many, many times, because uh, clinical trials, the way medical devices are used in clinical trials, is just simply not reflective of how they're actually used in the real world. Right. So it's kind of the uh, engineering equivalent. I know we have a lot of engineers in our audience, John. It's kind of the engineering equivalent when I was an undergrad 
we always made the assumption that frictional losses were negligible. And so therefore, we did not have to take into account friction. On the other hand, real-world evidence for what happens in the real world, how uh, physicians or surgeons or even individual patients, how they actually use our device, um, that would be the engineering equivalent, as we do in graduate school, of no longer assuming that friction is negligible and taking those frictional losses into effect. Mm-hmm. So in the end, which is more important? Well, I'll leave that somewhat as a rhetorical question for the audience, but it seems to me, John, and I suspect I know you well enough, I'm guessing you might agree, that the way, we, uh, the way our medical devices are used in the real world is much more important than the way that our medical devices are used in the theoretical world of yeah. randomized clinical trial. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, though. I mean, like you said, the current gold standard for for you know some devices and some technologies, especially you know if you're a higher classification product, and that you know that clinical trial is is kind of a necessary component, and for many types of products to to even get to a point where you're ready for any type of regulatory uh, approval or or clearance or submission, and, and I guess it's. You know, I feel a little bit stuck in some respects. Like, you know, I've got it feels like FDA is kind of saying two different things. You know, they're saying do this randomized clinical trial, and we're going to use that as a basis for evaluating your product, your technology, uh, from a regulatory standpoint. But then now they're coming out with this this thing called real world evidence, which it's not direct conflict, uh, but it's it's certainly from a, a pretty drastic, uh, drastically different perspective of things. And, and it seems like that can create a lot of conflicts for companies. Well, it certainly can, John. And just to be clear, because I want to make sure that your, under, your audience uh, understands when I make a statement that, uh, the, that the randomized clinical trial is inherently biased, that it's not reflective of how we actually practice medicine in the real world. Let me just take a a quick moment and explain what I mean by that. In a clinical trial, we have a lot of control in terms of who uses our device, uh, that the inclusion and exclusion criteria of the patients that we use, uh, that, that use our device, how that device is used. You know, we make sure that, for example, physicians are trained, physicians are following a protocol, and so on and so on. But in the quote-unquote real world, that is in the, real, in the world of the practice of medicine, which is, you very well know, John, the FDA does not regulate. Right. Um, medical devices, and to be fair, drugs as well, are used however the physician wants to use them. And so, again, although historically the randomized clinical trial has become the gold, uh, has been referred to as the gold standard, a lot of people think of it you know, the gold standard because it's good. I don't think so at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, the, that the, the, as I said, the way that our devices are used in the real world is much more important. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, and I, I think spe- especially with, and there's been a lot of emphasis, and you and I have talked a little bit about this in the past, there's been a lot of emphasis as well on topics like human factors and usability. And of course, you know that that risk management topic that that obviously is pretty important to, to medical technologies and products as well, and so those those are all kind of in that spirit of of real world evidence. And I and I remember um, being at an event with you not not that long ago, where I think we we were both in a session on the topic of human factors, and and uh, there was some lively discussion on that topic. And I remember that you did bring up 
that uh, that idea of real world evidence that that being more important. And and so I think it's something that I, it feels like I guess from from my perspective, uh, you know, being in this space for a while and and you know picking your brain from time to time, it feels like we're kind of in a shift. That although the gold standard may be that randomized clinical trial, uh, you know, at present day that that it, it seems like FDA is starting to, I guess, kind of change that a bit or send a new message that says, "Hey, folks, you may want to start moving in this new direction." I mean, that's a bit of speculation. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Well, actually, it's pretty good speculation, John. There has been a gradual change in the the direction the wind is blowing, so to speak. Historically, FDA and to be to be fair, not CDRH, but Cedar and Sieber and the other major centers at FDA, they have not been keen on uh, accepting real world evidence in lieu of randomized clinical trial data. And we can talk more about that in a moment. But with the advent of this guidance and with similar guidances coming out from CEDAR, that is starting to change and uh, bringing a tiny bit of politics involved. The new FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, uh, shares a similar view that I and a few other people have about real-world evidence, and that is I don't want to certainly put words in Dr. Gottlieb's mouth, but I think he would probably agree with this statement. As long as the real-world evidence is credible, as long as it is of good quality, then quite frankly, why should we have to reinvent the wheel? Why should we have to go out and do a expensive, time-consuming clinical trial to collect data that we already have? So you're right, things are changing, but to, still to this day in 2017, even as, we, even as we have this discussion today, I have several examples of, of devices at FDA where it's still very, very difficult to get them to swallow that pill, so to speak. Yeah, and then, um, I, um, it feels a little throwback, to, I mean, this topic for me, because I, I can, uh, and I share a story um, every so often with folks about the, the, my first experience with the device that I was developing and being present for uh, the first time it was used clinically. Um, you know, was it in a clinical trial? It was, it was, and it's a, uh, I, I certainly that's something that, that, um, that you might be able to do these days um, because of the classification of the product and things like that. I mean, uh, yeah, we didn't have uh, an IDE, we didn't have IRB, we didn't have any of those things. Um, was it significant risk? Not, ourselves, uh, we certainly are. Was it significant risk? Not significant risk. Uh, all right, we're not going to dive there. But, but I was, I was, I remember that, and it was, uh, it was a catheter type product. I remember it very well, and and I was there, you know, bright and early in the morning one day, and and sitting down, you know, just a few minutes before the, the procedure with the anesthesiologist. And first time I had met the anesthesiologist, frankly, first time he'd ever seen, you know, this device that I developed. Granted, it was pretty similar to other catheter technologies, so wasn't new in that respect. But, uh, and I remember being excited. And then he's like, all right, go ahead and scrub up and, or go put scrubs on and, and meet me in the OR. And then I did that. And, I'm, and then I'm, I suddenly had this realization as I'm, you know, 12 inches away from, from the patient watching the anesthesiologist use this product for the first time it had ever been used. And, you know, having this, this kind of this freak out moment, I, I felt like, you know, sweat was just uh, pouring down my armpits and I could, and I just felt a little flush and a little clammy. And, 
I remember that moment very, very, very well. And, but at the same time, it was so invaluable, you know, because the, the and yes, the procedure went just fine, no issues, anything like that. But I learned so much from actually being part of that, that actual real world uh, evidence of that particular device. Well, that's a great story, John. Thank you for sharing that with me and also with our audience. That actually would be a good example of what I would consider to be real-world data. Uh, Whether it's real-world evidence or not, I'm not sure. And here's what I mean by that. In the guidance, it does distinguish between real-world data and real-world evidence. I won't bother to insult your audience's intelligence by reading the definitions. They're in the guidance. But simply put, um, real world evidence is um, held to a. Uh, it, 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 here's basically the way I like to think about it it's data of a sufficient quality uh, that it can be treated as, in fact, evidence. Okay. Um, so, in other words, to use a medical device pun, um, it, real world evidence uh, is substantially equivalent to, uh, to, to that higher level of, of standard, if you will. Um, so, or, or, or let me just try to put it one other way a little bit more simply. There's a lot of data out there, but how much of that data is actually evidence, you know, at that higher quality? This is exactly what I meant a moment ago. You know, I do believe, I'm not trying to put words in anybody else's uh, mouth, but I do believe Dr. Gottlieb's position on this, and I agree with him 100%, is it comes down to the quality of the data. Yeah. So... To get FDA to swallow that proverbial pill, whether we call it real-world data or real-world evidence, quite frankly, I could care less. You know, Shakespeare sure. said, a rose by any other name still smells as sweet. The question is, is it of sufficient quality to be held to that evidentiary standard, if you will, that we might call it in a, in a legal sense? Mm-hmm. All right. That's interesting. And, I, and I'm just kind of you know thinking through, because I'm a system guy, I like to think about how, you know, the mechanisms, the approach and that sort of thing. And so, you know, if I start to think about, wow, how valuable this real world data, which could, you know, help me with this, this real world evidence, I'm going to learn so much more, frankly, about my product. It's going to help me with those other things that that I mentioned earlier, usability, human factors. I'm just going to learn so much more about that product. That's right. And, and, and to put it even more yeah. succinctly and more more bluntly, um, I have companies sh- uh, all the time that share with me real world data, and I say to them, "Well, quite frankly, this is crap, you know, <laughs> and we can't possibly present this to the FDA." So this is why, historically, by the way, real world evidence uh, and being able to use it as part of a submission, as we'll get to in a moment, has been so controversial. Because yeah. uh, there is a lot of it out there that is, um, I hate to be blunt, but it is pretty crappy. You know, garbage in, garbage out, that kind of thing. Well, and, and like I said, I'm thinking about this mechanism, right? And I, I'm thinking about, you know, being that product development engineer. And, you know, as many things as I can simulate and, and try to, to do from a, from a bench test uh, or an animal study or something like that. I mean, those are all valuable uh, learning opportunities to improve my product, but man, nothing is like, I I go back to that story I shared, nothing was like actually being there 
uh, when it was the first time that that product was used. I mean, it's just you just learn so much, and it's 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 a little bit about your. It's a lot. Well, frankly, it's a lot about your product, but but it's also a lot about not just your product, but all the other stuff that's going on during that type of procedure. You know, all the other uh, products that could interface and the environment and the user and man, it's just. Um, engineers and product developers out there, you know, if you have an opportunity to, to go through that type of experience, it is, it is so, so invaluable. And I realize that sometimes there are um, a little bit of, there might be some, some constraints or obstacles to do that. So I guess curious for me, I mean, do you, if we wanted to go down this path of, of gathering real world data and hopefully not being crap and helping us uh, devise or establish real world evidence about our technology, I mean, what's the mechanism? Am I still going to go down an IDE path uh, for a significant risk type of device? Well, let's talk about that for a moment. But before we do, I just want to clarify because I want to make sure that none of our audience misunderstands, you know, some of the examples that you just shared, because some of it is actually not real world evidence. So benchtop data, for example, is not real world evidence. Animal data is not real world evidence. If you have proof of concept uh, using a, some sort of a prototype in a in a, in a human being or whatever, the device is not uh, officially on the market yet. That's not real-world evidence either. Good point. By definition, real-world evidence is evidence or data of the device, how it's used, when it is already on the market, when it already has a 510K or a PMA or a de novo or something like that here in the United States. It just means that it's not part of a, of a clinical trial. That's all. Okay, uh, and by the, way, by the way, um, I don't want our audience to assume that the only time we do clinical trials is before the product is cleared or approved. That's true. On the contrary, we do lots of clinical trials for a variety of different reasons after the product is already on the market as well. Good point. So Thank, in, thanks for that clarification. That's a really good point. You're, you're welcome. Um, so now let's move on to, 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 to the question that you asked in terms of how do we use this well, my favorite way and the most obvious way uh, and probably the most common way that real-world evidence is and will be used in the future is in terms of a label, label expansion. In other words, okay. we have a device already on the market, might be a PMA, might be a 510K, whatever. It's on the market for indication X. We want to go back to the FDA with another submission uh, and add another indication, call it indication Y. That in the regulatory vernacular is called a label expansion, and we've done that. Uh, we've talked about that uh, in some of our previous discussions. The question is, what kind of data or evidence that we do we need to support it? Oftentimes, we would need to do an additional clinical trial uh, in order to gather that evidence to add that claim to the label. But here's the thing. If okay. physicians are already using our device off-label to do indication Y, uh, as long as that data is of sufficient quality so that we can consider it to be evidence, why should we have to reinvent the wheel? Why should we have to go and do a whole nother randomized clinical trial to essentially collect data that we already have? So we could use real-world evidence in lieu of a clinical trial, or at the very least, we can use real-world evidence to be able to justify doing a much smaller clinical trial than we otherwise might normally uh, have to do in order to do the, the label expansion. 
So that's the first and the most obvious. There are a couple of other examples that we can use real-world evidence for Mm -hmm. in the Class 3 PMA world and in some Class 2 devices, because as you know, John, there are a small but growing number of uh, Class 2 510K devices that are are also requiring clinical data. Um, We can use real-world evidence to meet our post-market approval study obligations or in the drug world what we call post-market surveillance as a part of a PMA and as a part of some 510Ks. There is a requirement to do what's called a post-approval study. This is essentially a clinical trial after the device is already uh, approved or cleared. So in some cases, we can use real-world evidence in lieu of uh, or at the very least to shore up our uh, post-approval study. And finally, the last example, and this is, those two examples, by the way, are, are discussed in the guidance a little bit, um, but some of us have been doing this long before that time. <laughs> um, yeah. the, uh, the last and the most interesting example that I think, and it's not, it's not even remotely touched on in any guidance, at least thus far, somebody asked me, can we use real-world evidence, not as part of a label expansion, but to actually get our clearance or approval for the first yeah. time for a new device here on the market in the U.S., most regulatory professionals, John, would 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 say absolutely not. You cannot do that. But as I've said in our conversations before, average regulatory professionals know the rules. The best ones know the exceptions. Right. Here's an interesting scenario that I could see playing out. What if we have real-world evidence that was collected on a device outside the U.S. So this is off-label use of a device outside of the U.S. This is real-world data, no question about it. But if that data is of sufficient quality that we can present it as evidence, I think it would be a very interesting idea to present this to FDA, either in lieu of or at the very least in addition to the data that we're already planning on collecting in our clinical trial for that particular new device. Call me a regulatory geek, John, and some people do, but I think here in Boston, we would call that a wicked cool idea. <laughs> uh, you know, here in the, in the Midwest, uh, I've been trying to, to get people to use the word wicked, you know, as well. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, no place uh, says it better than, than the Boston area. But I, I, think it's a, I, I think it's a wicked cool idea as well. And, you know, and as you were sharing that that thought, that concept, I was thinking, man. I mean, because you know, and I, I often put on that product developer hat because you know, one of the things that that I was, you know, I, I shared my story, but but as time evolved, now that story, uh, doing that sort of thing today would be would be challenging, uh, frankly. From and um, maybe rightfully so, we won't get into into the nuances of that, but. Yeah, if I could get a product, and let's just play out your scenario or your idea, but you know, maybe maybe there's um maybe the I can get to market in a part of the world uh, a little bit quicker uh, for for whatever reason because of the regulatory environment or whatever the case may be, and so now I can I can launch this device in Europe or Canada or you know wherever in the world that that it makes sense uh, and. And now I gather this real-world evidence on the use of my product in that part of the world, and now I can use that to support my FDA submission for that product. 
Well, I think it's an intriguing or, idea, and to put it a slightly intriguing. different way, uh, to put it a slightly different way, um, and this would be obviously the topic of a, of a whole different discussion, but simply put, the idea of having to jump through different sets of regulatory hoops mm-hmm. just as a function of where you happen to be standing on the earth at the time, or in this particular case, having to do clinical trials over again just because you happen to be standing on a different part of the earth at the time. I mean, with all due respect, that is becoming antiquated thinking. And I think one of the potential future uh, benefits of real-world evidence is to bring new devices onto the market here based on what's been done in other places in the world. Now, again, I just have to reiterate my caveat. I do acknowledge the reason why that this has been controversial in the past, and this is a legitimate concern, that real-world evidence has to be credible. It has to be yeah, it can't be crap. efficient quality. It yeah, can't it can't be, be crap. crap. Yeah, right. And so I, how about some examples of real-world evidence, John? Do you think your audience would be uh, interested in that? I think that would be fantastic because, you know, I, like I said, you, this conversation has, has got gears turning in my head, and I'm sure it's got uh, listeners doing – uh, the same sort of things, but yeah, some examples may really just help uh, se- seal the deal a little bit more as far as really grasping this concept and how it can benefit us as as so the, companies bringing products. So that's products a great to market. place to to go next. So the the first example I'll share is the one that actually FDA shares in the guidance. And by the way, one of the criticisms by some people in industry of the guidance is that FDA has not provided enough examples as to how specifically real-world evidence uh, can be incorporated. And to be honest with you, I don't think that's a, a legitimate criticism, and here's why. Because I don't need, with all due respect, the FDA to tell me how to solve my problem. You know, right. when we're growing up in school, you know, in elementary school or high school, you know, the teacher says, here's the problem, here's how you solve it, step one, step two, step three. Okay, that might work for, you know, for for seven-year-olds or for Mm 12-year-olds, but it shouldn't have to be for us. That's our job. But the one example that the FDA does share from the guidance is one of the minimally invasive heart valves that uh, was recently brought to the market, where the company, uh, in this particular case, Medtronic, uh, brought it onto the market and then used real-world evidence to do a label expansion later. Uh, and in the interest of full disclosure, Medtronic has been a customer of mine for a very long time, sure. although I was not involved with this particular device. But that's one example right out of the guidance. And if your if your um, uh, audience is interested, they can they can see the gu- the guidance, or they can contact me for more info. I'll share with you one example from my world, and this is actually a great illustration of what we talked about a moment ago in terms of how easy or difficult it is to get FDA to swallow this real-world evidence pill. So coincidentally, I went to the FDA with a pre-sub for a company one month after the uh, draft guidance for real-world evidence came out. So this was approximately a year ago. Uh, The brief history of the device, the device was already on the market. It was brought to the market about six years ago under a 510K. A couple years later, they did a label expansion. They did not change the device at all. They instead just added another indication. That was done with a subsequent 510K. A couple of years after that, 
They went back to the FDA with yet another label expansion. Again, the device itself was exactly the same, no change in engineering whatsoever, uh, but they added a third indication. In this particular case, there was a pretty big difference, so they did not go back to the FDA with a 510K. They did it as a de novo. Okay, We had a ton of real-world evidence to support that particular new indication because surgeons have been using this particular device off-label this way for, for, uh, for a, a long time. FDA was insistent that the company did do a randomized clinical trial, remember the gold standard, in order to support this new indication. I anticipated this. You know, one of my philosophies that I've developed over the years in dealing with this, you know, playing this game is you can't anticipate every problem or question, but you can anticipate many of them. I anticipated this. I brought a hard copy of the draft guidance at the time, <laughs> just literally a month after it came out. And I held that up and I said, look, we are doing exactly what this new guidance nice. is telling that we're able to do. Okay, so you know I will do whatever I can, legal of course, to uh, to win this game. Um, so so that's you know a more uh, current example. You know even though that guidance now is final, it's yeah. still a difficult pill for some folks in FDA to uh, to swallow. Sure, I mean like you said, the gold standard has been the gold standard for for quite some time. So you know we're uh, any type of shift or transition from from that is it's going to take a bit of time and that's um, right yeah but so. again john i just want to be absolutely crystal clear with your with you and with your audience here i'm not advocating taking shortcuts i'm not advocating not doing testing whether it's benchtop animal or even clinical testing when i think as a professional biomedical engineer that it's justified either from an engineering or a biology perspective on the contrary i will often say to companies, gee, maybe you should do a little more testing yeah. here, even though it might not be required right. because it's the right thing to do. But on the other hand, I don't want to do more testing than I, than, than I have to. For sure. And if I already have data, and especially if it's better, more realistic data, real world evidence, as opposed to some theoretical randomized clinical trial, why the heck should I have to spend the extra time and money collecting it? It makes absolutely no sense. It, it does not. I mean, and and it's just um, it's just not practical. And you, we've talked about and you've shared, uh, and I'll paraphrase uh, things that you've said in the past, Mike. You know, if we're just doing things because we're trying to check a box or fulfill a regulatory requirement, then we're kind of missing the point. And and I think that's a really key key point for people to understand. And by the way, the Mike referenced uh, a guidance document uh, during today's conversation, and and there's a couple of items, uh, guidance documents from FDA that that uh, we'll make available. Uh, what's the the post that accompanies the podcast, as well as a few articles on this topic as well. So, I guess Mike, any any parting shot on the the topic of real world evidence before we wrap up today's podcast? Well, just one last thing to add in terms of references. Another thing we can provide to your audience, John, for those that are interested, uh, in about a month, FDA is doing a webinar on the new real-world evidence guidance, um, and we can post a link to that via the website as well. Sure. I'll be and so really that, honest. That's going to be like in um, like the October 2017 yes, time frame? Uh, I don't remember the date off the top of my head, but it's in All right, we'll uh, find oh, October 10th, actually. All right. uh, we, can, we, can put, we can post a, a link to that. It's in about a month sure. from now. 
for sure. Uh, but I'll be, I'll be honest with you, uh, most webinars at F, that FDA puts on, this is not a criticism, it's just, it's just an observation. They're really not very useful, at least not to me, with all due respect, because they're really doing nothing more than reading to you what's, what's already in the guidance. <laughs> and they're not going to tell you how to use it. They're certainly not going to tell you strategy. But to be frank, that's not their job. Not their job. That's, that's our right. job. Right. You know, so so using my poker game metaphor, as I've used many times, FDA would basically read you the rules of poker, but they're not going to tell you how to re- how to win the game. Right. What right. you and I are talking about here is a little bit about the rules, but more importantly, strategically, how do we win the game? Right. And you know. Folks, this is a really interesting topic, and of course, if you would like to to learn a little bit more about that, and and uh, you know, Mike's talked about uh, competitive regulatory regulatory strategy in the past, and and that sort of thing. But you know, obviously, Mike is a guy that thinks about this topic of regulatory in a, a much more I'll say unconventional way, and I mean that as a compliment because because I think you're right. I mean. If we continue to do things the same way over and over again, uh, I think I think there was a great uh, a great scientist that once said that that might fit in the definition of insanity. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I think that might have been Albert Einstein. <laughs> I think that might have been Albert Einstein. So um, so folks, well, that's it, very kind of you to say, John. And I'm certainly not going to be so bold as to compare myself to Einstein, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I think what you just said is a, is a very polite way of, of telling me that I'm wackadoodle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, Mike, but seriously, a... as, we, as, as we wrap this up, yeah. uh, you know, the most important thing I can leave with your audience in terms of real world evidence is that people should definitely follow the continuing discussion of this uh, and be receptive, at For least sure. to consider the idea of using this in some of your label, I'm sorry, in some of your regulatory submissions, especially your label expansion. For sure. That's the, the most obvious one, as I talked about. But first and foremost, remember what it comes down to is actually very, very simple. The credibility or the quality of your evidence. For if sure. You can, you know, if, you're, if you are a, a medical professional, I would like to think that you can make that judgment yourself. And if that uh, data... Uh, you know, meets your criteria of evidence, then you should have no problem selling it to the FDA. Or I shouldn't say no problem, but you uh, eventually you should be able to get FDA to. Yeah, that for sure, Mike. That, I appreciate your insights and and I like that kind of that final word, so to speak. And I want to really highlight that word quality that that um, Mike mentioned. I think sometimes in the medical device space, we we get so we really get stuck in this concept of compliance. And and when we get sometimes when we get stuck in that concept of compliance, we're trying to check boxes and make sure we got the right forms and the right this and the right that and so on. And we really miss the point. And folks, that's why Greenlight.guru exists. Frankly, is to to really shift your way of thinking. We're trying to give you real world evidence of of how to to really shift your thinking to instead of just checking boxes and blindly doing things that that you don't always understand why we're we've shifted it. We've put the emphasis back where it needs to be. And that emphasis is back on quality. And that includes making sure that, that you've got what you need to do, certainly to be compliant, but we want to make sure that you're assessing your risk and your design control activities and your CAPAs and your complaints, all of these things that are so important to the overall success of your products. Remember, 
you're in this business to improve the quality of life. And we are too at Greenlight.Guru. So if you'd like to learn a little bit more about Greenlight.Guru and how we're helping companies all over the world improve the quality of life, you should reach out to us. Go to www.greenlight.guru and learn more and request information. And thanks again to Mike Drews, president of Vascular Sciences. This has been John Spear, your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.Guru. And you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.